It's true what they say. You choose your friends, but you're stuck with your family. Now, many people don't like that, of course. I remember very clearly hearing a three-year-old once say to his father, Dad, if you spank me, I won't be your son anymore. It was a nice effort, but it just doesn't work that way, does it? Uh, Maybe the law allows someone to be called an ex-husband, but barring death, there's no such thing as an ex-father or an ex-brother or sister either. Our families are something we're stuck with, even when our families come unstuck. Our parents and our siblings will be just as husbands or wives should be ours until death do us part. We're stuck. So the question must be faced, what makes a good family? And how can we make our families work? How can we make our families havens of peace rather than uh, civil war battlefields in miniature? It was Count uh, Leo Tolstoy who said that all happy families resemble one another, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. All happy families resemble one another. So how do they resemble one another? Uh, what are the common traits? Well, first, there's got to be a commitment to the family, a commitment shared by all. There must be a willingness to, to put family first at times, to forego other opportunities outside the home for the good of the family. Then there must be an atmosphere of trust, of, of love and acceptance. This gives the home the, the security that it's meant to provide. And loving relationships are a family's best protection against the challenges of the world. One author has said. And that means there must be patience and forgiveness. And, and then the security must be fostered by reliable leadership, giving guidelines and direction and discipline to the whole. Good families. They soon may be an endangered species in our society, but they are deserving of our utmost efforts to conserve. And our scripture passage this morning speaks to us about a good family. Though it's a family of a different kind. It is a church family. And the family was certainly one of these central metaphors or models we find in the New Testament for understanding the nature of the church. Now, Paul saw this church in Thessalonica as a family to him. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, he says back in chapter 2, verse 11. We were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children, he writes in 2.7. And in the 17 verses of our passage this morning, he refers to them as brothers, which I certainly take to include sisters. He refers to them in this affectionate language of sibling five times. Now, this church was a church in infancy. It was only a, a few months old. And the Christians there were no doubt waking up to the fact that you choose your friends, but you're stuck with your family. You see, God had brought these people, he brought them together in his sovereign grace. And now they had to learn to live together as a family of God. They had no choice. I mean, if one of them got offended, they couldn't just pack up and transfer their membership to the church across town. There was no such thing. This was it. I mean, they couldn't say, I'm not going to be your brother anymore. They were stuck. Live in peace with each other, Paul urges them. And we can assume that they needed that urging. We all do. 
A church is a family. We've been born again into the family of God. And because we've been joined together with Jesus Christ by faith, because God is now our Father in heaven, we are all brothers and sisters of one another. And so we are called, so we are commanded to live in peace with each other. In our text this morning, uh, Paul gives us four pieces of fatherly advice on how to do just that. He says in verses 12 to 13, respect the leaders who guide you. Verses 14 and 15, love the stragglers who need you. Verses 16 to 18, rejoice in the Lord who loves you. And then finally, verses 19 to 22, depend on the Spirit who empowers you. All happy families, all happy church families, resemble one another. And here Paul tells us what they should all look like. So let's look at this passage then, beginning in uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Paul writes, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. First, Paul tells us if you're going to be a good church family, you must respect the leaders who guide you. Now, we happen to know two of those leaders in the church in Thessalonica by name. Luke mentions them in Acts 20, verse 4. Aristarchus and Secundus. Respect these leaders, Paul says. Now, in the, the, the construction of the Greek original makes it clear that Paul's referring to these leaders as one group of people who act in three different ways. And first he says you should respect your leaders simply for their labor. They work hard among you. Hold these people in the highest regard and love because of their work. They have demonstrated a zeal for the work of Christ, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. They have given of their time and their energy for your benefit. And a leadership role is not easy. It can drain a great deal of emotional energy as you wrestle with people's problems. It can involve hard work, long hours, and for that reason alone, they deserve your respect. Respect them, second, he says, for their leadership. They are over you in the Lord, he says. Now, the word Paul uses here refers to one who leads, one who manages, one who oversees what's happening. And it's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in talking about the qualifications of an elder. He writes that we must, he must manage or lead his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So he's talking about a particular kind of leadership, a rule. It's not a dictatorial rule. Paul's referring to the loving leadership like that of a father in the home. And Peter gives the same advice in his letter. He, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And just look at the example that Paul himself sets in this very passage. Notice this great apostle. He says, now we ask you in verse 12. We urge you in verse 14. And throughout he speaks to them as his, his brothers. He doesn't dictate, though he had the authority to do just that. Instead, he appeals. For he leads in the attitude of humility demonstrated by Jesus himself. This is the leadership 
to which we must aspire. But let's not confuse this humility and gentleness with an indifference to truth and righteousness. For look at the third thing that leaders are to be respected for, not only for their labor and their leadership, but also for their loving discipline. Respect those who admonish you, Paul says. And as in a human family, so in a church family, there must be moral instruction. Instruction about what is right and what is wrong. Which means there must be accountability for our actions and at times even discipline. As I used to tell my boys, uh, so much so, I'm sure they got sick of hearing it. I love you too much to allow you to act this way. And that must be true in the church too. And there are times when leaders must admonish members for behavior that is dishonoring to God and destructive to themselves and to others. And the question is, do you expect that of your church leaders? And even more importantly, would you respect them for it? Now, let me say a word here about church membership. Becoming a church member rather than simply being a church attender, is important because it's an important way of respecting your leaders. It's a way of recognizing that you're a part of this church, that you're putting yourself under the leadership of this church. And so church membership says, I want to be led and loved. I want to be cared for. I want even to be admonished by these men who act as spiritual fathers in this church family. And until you formally join the church, I, as a pastor, don't know if that is really true about you. You're not really a a full member of this church family. And if you're not a member, I would simply ask, why not? Why not? Do you want to live at peace? At peace with one another in the church? Do you want a happy church family? Paul gives us a first step. Respect the leaders who guide you. They serve like like fathers in the family and you should honor them for it. And I think that means give them the benefit of the doubt. Speak well of them. Don't entertain gossip or, or careless accusations against them. Don't even listen to such talk. You should respect their spiritual authority in your life. Now, in this church, the elders with the pastors form a leadership team. And this plurality of leadership provides mutual accountability. And and as this church has a, a congregational form of government, the leadership is accountable to the congregation as a whole. And you as a congregation select your leaders. And so our congregational government limits the authority that they exercise, but in no way diminishes the respect that is due them. And theirs is a great responsibility. Hebrews says, they watch over you as men who must give an account. Give an account not just at a congregational meeting, but give an account to God. And what is your responsibility as members of this congregation? Hebrews tells us that too. Obey your leaders so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. And to sum up, I like how John Stott puts it. With regard to our leaders, we are neither to despise them as if they were dispensable, nor to flatter or fawn on them as if they were popes or princes, but rather to respect them and to hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. 
A happy church family is one that respects its leaders in this combination of appreciation and affection. Paul moves on in verse 14 from speaking about our attitude toward those who are out front, uh, those who are setting the pace, to speaking of our attitude toward those who appear to be lagging behind. The idle, the timid, the weak, those who are out of step, they're on the fringe, they're left out, perhaps wandering away. Do you want to be a healthy and happy church family? Then love the stragglers who need you. He says in verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Now, we may be in the Lord's army, as the children's song says, but the church is not to be an officer's training corps where you either keep up with the program and make the grade or you get out. No. The image Paul gives us here is of the church more like a hospital. It's a treatment center for sinners. It's a reform school for rebels. And didn't our Lord say that he did not come to help the healthy but the sick? And what a tragedy it is to see churches in which people who are not mature Christians, where they can't feel welcome, they can't feel accepted, they can't feel loved. In such churches, you have to wonder if there is some misunderstanding about what a mature Christian really is. For in Paul's mind, a mature Christian is one who warns those who are idle, encourages the timid, and helps the weak. You might ask him, well, am I my brother's keeper? The Bible says you are. You see, we have a responsibility to one another. And Paul addresses these words not just to the pastors or to the leaders. They are responsibilities that belong to everyone. He says, first, you are to warn those who are idle. Now, this is the same verb he's used back in verse 12. There it's translated admonish. And it has to do with the moral instruction to those who live disordered lives. And here Paul may have in mind particularly those who are lazy, who refuse to work, and who simply lived off the good work, uh, goodwill of their fellow believers. Uh, in his next letter to the Thessalonians, Paul has to write, we give you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. And at times love must be tough. Warn them. Admonish them, Paul says, in love. Speak truth. And second, he says, you are to encourage the timid, the timid, literally the the weak souled, the faint hearted, the discouraged, the downhearted. You see people going through a difficult time, people who are down, discouraged, send them a card, give them a phone call, take them a meal, something that says, hey, I'm with you. I care. And third, he says, you are to help the weak. And Paul here probably has in mind the spiritually weak, those not fully grounded in the faith, those who are liable to fall back into a worldly lifestyle. Don't let them fall, Paul urges. Hold them up. That's the way this verb could be translated. Now, how do we do that in the context of the church? Well, here I think we need to to develop those one-to-one discipling relationships. I call them spiritual friendships. We call them PDFs. Purpose-driven friendships. In other words, friendships that understand that this person is not just a friend that I hang out with and enjoy kind of talking about sports or politics or whatever. No, it's a friendship that I care about this person's soul. I care about who they are in Christ. I care about how they're growing in Christ. That's what we need. 
help the weak, he says. Um, now, you might call these mentoring relationships. At this point, I'd like to call up uh, Kathy Dixon and Helen Hoagie. There they are. A little break in the sermon. Uh, a little testimony here of a relationship of the sort I'm talking about. Helen, say a word. Good morning. Um, so Kathy was pointing out to me, this was about two years ago, um, that I was really facing a lot of challenges and getting very discouraged um, in various things um, and really felt that it was important to have um, someone pouring into me spiritually and um, holding me accountable of my own spiritual walk um, in the midst of what I was dealing with. And so um, I went to Kathy as a member of the Titus 2 team and said, I need a mentor. Um, and so she actually stepped up personally um, and has been meeting with me ever since. And it's been very, it's just been very encouraging. And um, it's good to have someone calling your attention to the areas um, that you need growth in. And also our church is very um, intergenerationally friendly. And we do have a lot of wisdom sitting in these pews. And so um, I encourage you to use it. And um, as you probably know, we have a, a women's mentoring program that we've kind of kicked off, uh, and we're going to be doing that this fall, uh, woman to woman. And I have a table in the back um, with sign-up sheets. I know a lot of people have already signed up, but uh, I would just encourage women um, to uh, check that out, just to check it out. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to um, pour into someone's life, you know, uh, I've learned as much from Helen as she's learned from me. It's been a wonderful relationship over this last two years. And I also wanted to point out, there's another little thing here. Um, in, in the bulletin, there's a thing about the women's morning groups. And we have a little prayer group that's going to be along with the, um, with the Bible studies. So um, women, just look at this little flyer. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. Application built into the sermon. Believers getting together, studying the word together, praying for each other, seeking help in their temptations and trials, seeking to grow up in Christ together to each according to his need. Warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Now, again, it, it, it takes the, the discernment, uh, the insight of a wise and discerning parent to know who needs the help, who needs the encouragement, who needs the admonishment. Finally, Paul says, in any event, whoever you're dealing with, be patient with everyone. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to, to everyone else. You know, it's not easy dealing with people in the church who don't have it all together like you do. You know, some people are just immature, or they're selfish, or they're simply foolish. They can be rude. They can be argumentative. They can be overly opinionated about politics or anything else. And it can be frustrating to be around them, even exasperating. So what do you do with these people? Do you attack them? Or maybe you just avoid them? No, you can't do either one. You can choose your friends, but you stop with your family. So what can you do? Paul says we're to be patient and kind with everyone. Now, it doesn't mean we seek to encourage them, perhaps admonish them. 
But all the while, we're to be patient and kind with everyone. Don't pay back wrong for wrong. How difficult this is. We're born with this urge for retaliation, revenge. It's our natural reaction. We want to treat others as they treat us. But Jesus says, that's just how the pagans act. They, they love to love those who love them. But we're to be different. We're followers of Jesus. And he certainly didn't act that way. He loved you when you were unlovable. He loved you, in fact, when you were his enemy. When you were in rebellion against his rule in your life. And he continues to love you despite your many faults and failures. That's what grace means. Not treating others the way they deserve, but loving them instead. And we're to be a community of grace. A community that represents and reflects the gospel. The gospel that we ourselves have experienced. We're to live it out. In this community. And so how do we do this? Well, let me urge you. Make it a point not to get easily offended by other people. I like Proverbs 19.11. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offense. It is his glory to overlook an offense. I mean, if someone says something that you don't like... First, consider whether you may have taken it the wrong way. Give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he or she didn't mean it the way that you took it. But maybe they did. Well, then give them a break. Maybe they're just having a bad day. Maybe they got stress at work. Maybe it was PMS or something. I don't know. Overlook an offense. But then if you can't, and if it's serious enough, then go talk to them. You owe that to them. Do it gently. Do it humbly, with grace. Speak the truth in love. You might say, Joe, I was, I was a little surprised, even put off by something that you said. What did you mean when you said such and such? Seek to be reconciled. Seek forgiveness and grace as you seek the truth. Be patient with everyone. Seek what is good for every person This is the way to peace. In the church, act as a family, treating one another as brothers and sisters, always reflecting the love and care of our Father in heaven. That's where it all begins. The grace that we have experienced. The new relationship with God as our Father. That's to be lived out. And that leads to Paul's second point here. In verses 16 to 18. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, what is Paul talking about here? What is this joy? Joyful always. Is this the kind of plastic smiling face you see behind the counter at McDonald's urging you to have a nice day? What kind of prayer is this? Pray continually. Is it expected to all become monks with the 24-hour prayer vigils? What kind of thanksgiving is this? Give thanks in all circumstances. Or would you be like uh, Pollyanna who had her glad game? Pollyanna had a glad game which consisted of thinking in every unfortunate circumstance of all the even worse things that could have happened instead. One broken leg is a cause for thanksgiving. Just think, it could have been two. Are we to deny adversity in that way? A constant joy, a continuous prayer, an unconditional thanksgiving. These things are inexplicable. In fact, they're almost downright silly. 
apart from one thing. And that is a loving relationship with the creator and sustainer of the universe who is our heavenly father. That's the thing. You see, all of these things are based on the contentment that comes through a personal relationship with the loving God who is in control of all things. And who has promised that he would work all things for our good according to his will in Christ Jesus. Christian joy. It's not that superficial happiness because everything's going my way. It's a deeper contentment in knowing God, knowing him as my creator, my redeemer, knowing that he cares about me, he accepts me as his own beloved son or daughter. It's knowing that nothing can separate me from his love. That's the source of Christian joy. And this unceasing prayer, it's simply that immediate access we have with God. And prayer is not just some formal activity we do at church or before meals or when we kneel before bed at night. No, prayer is the life breath of the Christian. It's the, it's the expression of the personal relationship that he offers us, talking with him as we walk or drive or wash the dishes. It's living in the presence of God. And giving thanks, it follows naturally from this. Again, if we live in fellowship with this living God who is in control of all things, we can trust that he is working for good in all things. Again, that's what he's promised. Now, this is not to say that all things are good in themselves or they're good simply because they could have been worse. We don't deny adversity. We don't deny pain or hardship. Those are very real. But we know that God can always work through those things and can overcome those things, accomplishing his gracious purpose in spite of it. Even as he did in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we recognize that everything we have, every situation we find ourselves in, it's all in his hands. And that's the reason we can Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's the reason we can rejoice in all circumstances. And that's the, the reason that we can, we can live in this relationship with him in constant prayer. Oh, what a joy the gospel gives us. This God whom we serve, he is a living God. He's alive in the world. He's alive in his church. He's alive in us by his spirit. And that's why Paul, in talking about the life in the family of God, moves finally to the work of the spirit of God. Look at verse 19. Do not put out, do not quench the spirit's fire. The spirit's fire. He's using the imagery often associated with the Holy Spirit in the Bible. A fire. It burns in our hearts. It's a powerful source of spiritual energy and warmth and light. Don't extinguish that fire in your midst. Don't snuff it out. Allow it to burn strong and bright. Now, there are all sorts of ways that this can be applied in our lives. Often it's said to, to refer to harboring sin in our hearts. A sin and righteousness, you see, these two are incompatible. And if we continue to live in willful sin and disobedience to God, then we will hinder the Spirit's work in our lives. Now, it could be that Paul's thinking about the joy, the prayer, the thanksgiving he's just referred to. Not to seek these in our lives is one way to suppress the Spirit's power in us. Now, in this context, it may be even more appropriate to apply these words to what follows. Where Paul says in verse 20, do not treat prophecies with contempt. 
And here I think Paul is saying that we must attend to God's word to us. We must attend to what God says to us. God's word must be honored. It must be obeyed. And I think this word, uh, reference to prophecies, can encompass that idea. But I don't think here it's necessarily equated with uh, just the words of the prophets of the Old Testament. For the New Testament church had its own prophets, its own prophetic messengers. They didn't have the same authority as those of the Old Testament. When you look at prophecy in the New Testament, you see that it was subject to various constraints. And most importantly, it required evaluation. And Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, when a prophet speaks, let the others carefully weigh what is said. In our passage, he says, test everything. So you'd evaluate what's said if it comes as a prophetic message. It's to be evaluated by uh, the scriptures. Is it, is it align with the scriptures? Does it align with the teaching of the apostles? Uh, Paul teaches the Corinthians. If anybody doesn't recognize what I am saying as the Lord's command, he's to be ignored. And, and look especially at verse 27 of our own passage here. Paul says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He's emphatic here. And he gives no instructions about evaluating what he has to say. He expected his letters to be read right alongside the reading of the Old Testament scriptures, which was already an established practice in the church. So prophecy in the early church doesn't seem to have had the same authority, either of the prophets of the Old Testament or the apostles, whose teaching is now found for us in the New Testament. So is this New Testament prophecy simply the modern equivalent of preaching? Well, many think so, and I have some sympathy for this view. Some kinds of preaching fall into this category. But it could be broader than that. And, and what uh, Paul teaches on this matter, particularly in 1 Corinthians 14, is probably best to understand New Testament prophecy as an intuitive insight that's verbally expressed, which is given by God for the strengthening, encouraging, comforting, and conviction of its hearers. And so the Holy Spirit brings to mind, provides some insight which would edify those who hear it. It doesn't come with the same authority as the Bible. It's not the inerrant words of God. It must be tested. But I think this gift, this work of God, still exists in the church today. Uh, Paul, in fact, says it's a gift that should be desired. He says in our text, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Or in, verse, uh, in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, be eager to prophesy. Follow the way of love. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. We need this gift. We need to hear the living word of God to us. We hear God speaking to us supremely through the Bible, through the scriptures, through the systematic teaching of the word. But I think also through the spirit led application of God's truth to our lives. And so I pray that I may have this prophetic gift as I seek to apply God's word to our life as a church. And I pray that as I preach, you'll be hearing God speak and you will not treat God's prophecies with contempt. But I think others can speak in this way as well in the context of the life of a church where we take God's word, we seek to apply it to our lives. And God's spirit gives us insight on how to do that. And whenever God is speaking, we need to listen. We need to listen. 
And that's why we need to spend so much time in this book, listening to the clear voice of God. This is the Spirit-inspired Word of God. And to ignore the Word of God is to quench the Spirit of God. So then here it is. This is Paul's prescription for a prospering church family. Respect the leaders who guide you. Love the stragglers who need you. Rejoice in the Lord who loves you and depend on the Spirit who empowers you. So how does our church family measure up? Well, I'd say on the whole, family relationships are good. Though I know that the devil is always on the attack and at any time something could blow it all up if we're not on constant alert, if we're not vigilant. And that's why, you see, Paul has to give us this instruction. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We're like a family. And we all know how conflicts can come in families. Like any family, we have challenges. And we're in process. And I think Paul's words today come to us as the same word that came to the Thessalonians. This fledgling church body some 2,000 years ago. Paul writes to them, he says, We instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. More and more. That's the challenge set before us. Living as God's family. Displaying the gospel, being that community of grace and truth for ministry and mission to the glory of God more and more. Well, as our servers come forward, I invite you to bow as we pray, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Living together as God's family. Lord, as we reflect upon who you are as our gracious Father, Lord, may we give you thanks. May we be joyful. May we be prayerful. Lord, search our hearts about our attitude toward those who lead. Search our hearts about our attitude toward those in need. Lord, may we indeed be empowered by your Spirit that we might be the people you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Returning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. You'll find this on page 1171 in your uh, blue pew Bibles in front of you, if you don't have your Bible with you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.